Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. Here you will find Dr. Cindy Elliser and Kat McKeever, researchers at Pacific Mammal Research, talking all about marine mammals. We will have a variety of ways to share information with you through discussing research articles and news stories, interviews with other researchers, and more. Join us to learn more about marine mammals and have some fun. Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. I'm Cindy. And this week, uh, it's just going to be me. Um, we're just going to do a, a little bit of a shorter episode today. Um, but we wanted to uh, pay homage to a cetacean researcher that has uh, just more recently passed away. Um, and that is Dr. Roger Payne. Um, he was a, as you'll, as you'll learn, um, a huge, huge person in um, whales and dolphins and other marine mammal uh, protection and research, and really is the reason why Save the Whales is even a thing. Um, so we wanted to talk, tell, talk a little bit about him, and um, I'm going to uh, kind of go over one of the, his last um, articles that he just wrote for Time Magazine, uh, just days before he died. Uh, and it really gives a great perspective of how he lived his life and how hopefully we can continue his his legacy and what he um wanted wanted to have happen in the world, right? To save other species from extinction. So Dr. Roger Payne um, just died on June 10th. He was 88. He died of pelvic cancer. Um, he lived in South Woodstock, Vermont uh, and with his uh, now wife, Lisa Harrow. He was previously married to Katie Payne, who was a zoologist. Um, they had four children together. And um, back in the day, in the early, late 60s and 70s, um, they collaborated and worked together on a lot of projects. Um, and um, while he was uh, born in New York, uh, he was educated at both Harvard and Cornell, and he studied bats and birds before he found his way to the whales. And we're very thankful that he did. So um, Katie and, um, and Roger basically used primitive equipment in the 1960s, because uh, it was just the beginning of us kind of learning about what's under the water um, out there in the ocean um, to record um, humpback whales. And what's crazy is that, and maybe many, a lot of people don't know, uh, you know, the kind of history behind save why, you know, why was save the whale such a big thing in the 1970s, along with, um, you know, anti-war stuff and, um, and environmental other, and other environmental things that were going on, um, including, you know, the clean water and, and things like that, really the revolution of realizing the environment was in danger and we needed to help save it. So in 1967, they were on a research trip to Bermuda and there was a, a Navy engineer there that gave him recordings that they were listening for Russian submarines, um, but he saw these really weird sounds uh, that he was not thinking should be there, right? You're just listening to underwater and there's these weird eerie, um, you know, kind of moaning and groaning and, and uh, other kind of weird sounds. Um, and when Roger heard it, he he he's the one who figured out that they were humpback whales so he told uh in an interview he told uh, nautilus quarterly in 2021 that he first heard the recording uh, in the loud engine room of a research vessel and now almost and and knew almost instantly that the sounds were whales in quotes in spite of the racket what i heard blew my mind it seemed obvious that here finally was a chance to get the world interested in preventing the extinctions of whales. And it was, you know, one of those kind of light bulb moments for him and 
thank goodness for uh, the rest of the world as well. Um, he, he, this idea that he had um, spurred the movement of what we now know as and, and why everybody loves whales and protecting them and what, why we know so much more about them as well. So he figured them figured out that they were humpback whales and he saw it as a chance to spur interest in saving them. Um, and I think this goes a lot to what Kat and I I'll, uh, talk about on, on different podcasts of, uh, as well is, you know, how do we connect um, with the public and connect these animals to why we should care about them, right? And, and that's for any species, not just whales. Um, it's if we if we as humans can see them in a different light rather than just other and these weird things that we can't relate to, if you can see that they have similarities to us or that they have these amazing abilities, it it helps us in wanting to save them in in the, the larger public. So he saw this and and I, I'd like to point out that this is not just if, if oh he did this research and then he put it out in in, in you know in the scientific literature. And you know, maybe nobody would have heard much about it outside of the scientific, um, uh, the scientific world, uh, and that's where science communication comes in, right? So, the, the his idea of taking this and putting it in the public sphere, not just the research and finding out what it means, and you know, doing the analytics about it, which he also did, and was very important, of course, but. He knew that we needed, in order to be able to do all the research that we've been doing for the last now 40 or 50 years, we needed to save the whales first, right? We can cause them to go extinct and then we never know about these songs. Um, and so he saw this as the way that he could do that. And so he, he actually produced an album called Songs of the Humpback Whale. And I remember this when I was um, young, you know, I was, you know, in the late 70s, but this was uh, created in 1970. Uh, but it lasted for decades after that as being this kind of call to action. It galvanized a global movement to end the practice of commercial whale hunting. It is the, and it, it is, and still remains the best-selling environmental album in history. It's been featured in everything from 1971 episode of the Partridge Family to a 1979 issue of National Geographic that had flexi discs uh, that had experts, excerpts from songs of the humpback whale. And and I and I remember hearing these. And then there was there was there was many other versions of this of you know dolphin sounds with uh, songs in the background that they added to, or just just the the the, the vocalizations themselves. And you know these weren't as um, as popular maybe as the songs of the humpback whale, but that's what started it. That's what started the idea that we could listen to these other species and see something and hear something and want to learn more about it and want to save it and realize that there's some other entity on this planet that is just amazing and we need to know more about them and they are worthy of saving. So uh, it, uh, you know, save the whales became became ubiquitous on tote bags, on bumper stickers. It was one of the calls in the 1970s and even still beyond that, right? That was the, the heyday really. Um, but it, it literally saved the whales. And I don't think enough people understand that. Um, I, I mean, I kind of knew, but even um, not really fully until learning more about the, this, you know, the specific story about how this started. So it, it, I think it's a great reminder that all it takes is one thing, one person to think of something 
and connect that with the public and be able to change their minds, right? We went from, we were still, they were still whaling commercially into the 1980s, the early 1980s. So in um, the, um, but which also blows my mind, right? I, mean, I grew up with Save the Whales and, you know, that obviously we should save them. And obviously I've wanted to work with whales and dolphins and porpoises for my whole life. But, um, you know, if you think about the history, the, the moratorium on commercial whaling by the International Whaling Commission, so the moratorium, you know, worldwide by this, um, the International Whaling Commission, didn't happen until 1982. So we think of commercial whaling as this thing that was far in the past. Um, and certainly 1982 is farther in the past now than it was in, you know, early 2000s. But it's still pretty recent that we were commercially whaling these, these animals. This wasn't in the, the far gone past. So it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy that, 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 that we're still doing it so far into that, but, um, but this Save the Whales, the Song of the Humpback Whale, that spurred the ability to pass the 1972 Marine Mammal Protection Act, which is for in the, in the U.S., um, the, the main thing. It's, you can't get near marine mammals without a permit um, in the wild. Uh, and it's there to protect all different marine mammal species. Um, so again, the, the hump, Songs of the Humpback Whale came out in 1970. The MMPA was passed in 1972. And then eventually in 1982, the moratorium on commercial whaling. So it still took another decade later um, for the moratorium on commercial whaling to happen. Now, we were whaling less and less, but mainly because there were less whales, unfortunately. Um, but it's, you know, this was a, a huge part of making that be like, no, we need to stop this completely, like totally. Um, so he founded a, a nonprofit Ocean Alliance in 1971 to advocate for the protection of whales and dolphins. And this is still operating today in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Sorry if I messed that word up. Um, so that's another tribute to his longevity is, you know, since 1971, so it's more than 50 years that that work has been going on and, and saving many other species, not just the humpback whales. So it it really, um, you know, we, every year we lose people, you know, in, in all, on all walks of life and in, in the cetacean world as well. Um, but he really was one of the, the biggest ones, the reason why we can do what we do. Why, why do we have the chance to save these other marine mammals? Because Dr. Roger Payne learned what those, you know, figured out those humpback whale songs and knew that we needed not just research to understand what that was, but for the public to hear it and knew that that would change the perception um, and cause that drive to save them. And that's another great point is that you, as the consumer, as the public, have power, right? The reason why this all worked was because the public had an outcry and said, we don't want anybody to do this anymore. We don't want them hunted. We don't, we want them to live. We want them, anything that's, you know, doing things that are causing them harm, whether directly by killing them or other you know, pollution, other things like that, that all, they all pushed to make that stop at least as much as they could. Um, and that power in the consumer, the power of the public onto uh, the policymakers and whatnot, it has a lot of power. Uh, and that's why the whales were saved because Dr. Roger Payne got those recordings and um, 
knew that that could cause a change in the perception of people. And those people then put pressure on those above them in the higher up of government and, and commercial you know, consumer things and made them stop. Um, and that's why we have humpback whales today and many other species that were protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So I just wanted to kind of highlight his contributions to, um, to the world, right? Not just humpback whales, not just the marine mammal research that we get to do today, um, but on all life. And so the last thing I wanted to do just for the last couple minutes is go over um, his uh, recent article in Time Magazine. And you can access it. I'll have the link in the um, show notes. Uh, but you can access it uh, freely on the internet. Um, but one of my, I'm going to start off with one of the quotes from it. As my time runs out, I am possessed with the hope that humans worldwide are smart enough and adaptable enough to put the saving of other species where it belongs, at the top of the list of our most important jobs. I believe that science can help us sur survive our folly. And this was written five days before he passed. So he knew that he was dying when he, when he wrote this. And it's just a really poignant last, um, last uh, article or writing imploring us to continue what he started. And so the title of it is, I spent my life saving the whales. Now they might save us. And so he starts off with 50 years ago, he discovered that whales sing to each other and it captivated people. It started the Save the Whales movement. And he says, in the decades since, I've pondered what it would take to spark a new conservation movement uniquely suited to the opportunities and challenges we face and the dire warnings of unassailable evidence of a rapidly changing planet. A movement that inspires a new generation, gives voice to the marginalized, and uses science to inspire awe instead of fear. And that's a really important point, is that we, there's lots of gloom and doom, but we can't live there. It'll just make us not want to do anything. Like, what's the point if we are just thinking about all the bad stuff? But there's a lot of good stuff that's going on and we need hope in order to continue to persevere and go forward. And so to use the silence to inspire, like what can we do to fix these things instead of just talking about how bad things are. And so he's in this, uh, he's also involved in a new initiative called uh, Project SETI, the Cetacean Translation Initiative, which is basically trying to figure out using state-of-the-art robotics to listen and translate communications of sperm whales. Um, and the reason why they're doing, I just, I read an article about this um, somewhat recently. And one of the reasons why they're using this one in particular is because they have so much data for the, um, for sperm whales. They have, you know, thousands of hours of recordings. And if you've ever learned anything about um, this, like tr these um, uh, translational uh, and, and even um, the automated um, AI programs that help to uh, match dolphin pho uh, photographs, like spot patterns, or, you know, they have whale sharks and, and humpback whale flukes and cheetah spots and all that kind of stuff. But in order to train those programs, you have to have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pictures to be able to train it, to know what it's looking for. And so the same thing is if you're putting in communication or, or vocalizations, you need to have thousands of hours of that to train it, to figure out what those things mean. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why they're using that sperm well, because um, they have a lot of recordings from them. 
Um, and he says that in, it's from the work in Dominica is in its early stages, and though much has already been done to lay the groundwork for this massive effort as interspecies communication. Um, and they include, a, there's a scientific roadmap that's published that they published last year. Um, it's, uh, it's, so it's, it's, there's, they're doing a lot uh, in, um, with, with that data right now. And so it's a whole nother level, right? We're, but we're only there because of what Roger Payne did 50 years ago. So he says, I find myself at 88 years of age, very close to the end of a long life, coming to terms with the fact that I will not be around to find out what we learn. But what I can tell you is why this monumental journey of discovery matters. And he's, I like this one part. He says that the most consequential scientific discovery of the past 100 years isn't E equals MC squared or plate tectonics or translating the human genome. Although they are quite monumental, of course. Um, but there's one discovery so consequential that unless we respond to it, it may kill us all, graveyard dead. It is this, every species, including humans, depends on a suite of other species to keep the world habitable for it. And each of those species depends in turn on an overlapping but somewhat different suite of species to keep their niche livable for them. But the problem is that no one can even name all the essential supporting species, let alone describe their whole roles. We do, not, we do know that some are um, some of the most essential species are microscopic plants, um, and, but we know so little about them. Many of them don't even have common names. Many are unknown, unnamed, and undescribed. So he basically says that, well, if this is the case and we, have, we, we are ignorant of so much that's out there, we really don't know how many species are on this planet. The only rational course of action is to use every means possible, regardless of cost, to try to save all species of life, knowing that if we fail to save enough of the essential ones, we will have no future. <clears throat> the things we consider the world's life's uh, worst disasters, um, wars and plagues and pandemics that have killed tens of millions of people, um, will seem like minor nuisances compared to what we will experience if we kill off essential species that keep this planet livable for you and me. The consequences of failure are so astronomical that it is clear that there is nothing else nearly as important and urgent as preserving the rest of life. And the challenge now is to figuring out how to motivate ourselves to do it. He, so he says, you know, well, how do we get this idea across? Well, inspiration is the key, uh, just as he did 50 years ago with the whales. Um, he says, I believe that awe-inspiring life forms like whales can focus human minds on the urgency of ceasing our destruction of the wild world. Many of humanity's most intractable problems are caused by disregarding the voices of the other, including non-humans. Imagine what would be possible if we understood what animals were saying to each other. Right? We always, you always like to think about that, like, oh, what, what, are the, what are the whales saying? Or what are the bears saying? Or what are the bees saying? Um, and something we always think about or, you know, as a, oh, well, that'd be cool to know. But what if we could actually, and what, how would that change our perception of the world, of how it works together? Um, uh, if we could, and he says, if we could communicate with animals, ask them questions and receive answers, no matter how simple those questions and answers might turn out to be, the world might soon be moved enough, at least to start the process of halting our runaway destruction of life. Imagine if you could understand what another animal understood, like understands what's going on to them and to their kin and to their other, you know, other species around them. It really would, I think, change how important it is to save the rest of, of these species. So he says, I've received criticism for spending time and treasure trying to translate what I refer to as whale speak. 
My accusers complain that the needs of humans should always come before the needs of non-humans. But the reason humanity finds itself in its present predicament is in the major part because we have always put the needs of humans before the needs of the rest of life. And in his final paragraph, um, he says, as my time runs out, I am possessed with the hope that humans worldwide are smart enough and adaptable enough to put the saving of other species where it belongs, at the top of the list of our most important jobs. I believe that science can help us survive our folly. And that was the quote that I started off earlier with. 50 years ago, people fell in love with the songs of humpback whales and joined together to ignite a global conservation movement. It's time for us to once again listen to the whales, and this time to do it with every bit of empathy and ingenuity we can muster so that we might possibly understand them. And I think that's just an amazing way to basically pass the baton is what he's doing, right? He's spent his life trying to do just that and to inspire us to see the amazing things that are in other creatures and in other animals and how they, we are all intertwined, right? It's hard to fathom, it's hard to understand exactly that how much we need these other species, but we do. For the health of the ecosystem if there's no environment there's we're not going to survive um nor the other animals right it's so important to understand that and he's imploring us to because if we don't we're all doomed um in the end and so if we can see that we need to save these other species and however that works however we need to look at those animals to see that they are worthy of of saving is what we need to do. Um, and imagine if we could understand and talk to other species on this planet, what kind of world that would that would change, right? What, how it would look. And so that is where I kind of want to end it. Um, and just, I hope that we can take that baton that he's given us and run forward with it. With all this new technology that we have, we're able to, they just published the like most, uh, comprehensive um, uh, ID catalog for uh, Atlantic compact whales, I believe. Um, and uh, so we, we have this uh, technology, we can easily identify many species, many animals now and know them individually and know their, their, their life histories and how many calves they've had and who they interact with. Um, we can start, you know, we, we're learning, I just learned uh, somewhere, I was just reading that um, they've heard ultrasonic frequencies of like tomato plants squealing <laughs> when they don't have water. Um, there's so much more technology out there now that we have to be able to investigate these things. And hopefully we'll learn more about the sperm whales, what their um, codas mean. And um, we know that there's different dialects, there's different, um, just like with killer whales, um, those kind of different cultural aspects of these animals. And there's more in the quote unquote lesser animals, right? Of uh, that we um don't think of as 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 highly as these, you know, charismatic megafauna. Um, but they do um but these, you know, bees and and birds and things like that are more complicated than we give them credit for. And we're learning more and more about what these um uh, what these animals are able to do and what they and how they communicate. Um, and so Now's the time to use that technology. And as he says, that science can save us from our folly. Um, that we can, so the important part is doing that research, but also sharing it with the world in a way that everybody can see how amazing it is and not get bogged down in the 
um, the statistics and the, and the science behind it, um, but understanding what it means and the implications for that and what, what that means and how we perceive the world. And hopefully means that we can love it um, and love it into continuation <laughs> so that we can save these animals and the environment and ourselves. So I wanna um, just thank Roger Payne, Dr. Roger Payne for what he has done for the last 50 years for the whales and for humans. Um, and let's, let's take these ideas that he's given us and showed us work and move forward and see what else we can save in the future. Thanks. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Check out our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M, to learn more about us, our research, and the educational opportunities that we provide. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.